Hey, I know you've heard me talk about trust-driven care, and I know you heard me talk about why it's so important, but let me tell you this. One of the aspects that just seems so small that is such a big deal with our software, Trust Driven Care, is the ability to communicate with your patients. Now, when I say communicate, I mean have a two-way conversation. That is way different than just sending out appointment reminders via text message. That sounds like communication, but I'll challenge you to this. Imagine if you could only send one-way communication to your spouse for a week, and imagine how frustrated they would be if they can't respond to you. Your patients are feeling the same way. I don't know why we ever started this idea that we should send one-way communication to patients that they can't respond to. So don't be that provider. In fact, why don't you become a provider that allows for two-way communication, text messaging. You can respond, they can respond. But let's take it one step further. What if somebody submits a question on your website? Could you immediately start a back-and-forth conversation with them? We've added that into Trust Driven Care. Now, let's say somebody leaves you a review on Google, and they have a question, or they have something where they don't understand what happened. You could engage them in a conversation and quell any of their fears. The end goal, of course, is always to make sure that they become a patient or they're a patient who gets more appointments. Why? Because that's why we're in this game, to help provide the right care to the right people at the right time. And when they're asking questions, usually means there's something going on. Trust-driven care allows for two-way text communication along with email, along with surveys, along with forms, along with Google My Business integration, along with website chat widgets. It's all there so that you can run a better practice that communicates, grows, and has a massive impact in your community. Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. This is Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm excited for you to be on this journey. Look, when I started my Clinic Gym Hybrid back in 2013, I didn't have a place to go for resources. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're here. I hope you dig this interview. Let's jump in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Clinic Gym Radio. We are back for part two with the amazing, the accomplished, the incredible Brett MF and Jones, as I've often heard it referred to <laughs> by only the finest of, of your friends, by the way. Nobody outside of your friendship would call you that. But we're back with Brett Jones, uh, who is, among other things, a strength coach, among other things, a um, director of education for Strong First, um, a strength athlete himself, a cancer survivor, an overall great guy. And the way I was introduced to you, the number one fitness model hired by FMS in the early days. Because whatever Gray Cook wanted to demo, most of the time he was demoing on you, I feel like. Or at least the DVDs I bought had that. And yes, this is back in the days of DVDs. I think the first time I bought an FMS DVD, I had a choice between that and VHS, just to tell you how long ago it was. <laughs> Anyways, Brett, I really I appreciate uh, you coming back on this. Uh, as I told you before we started recording, I actually had people reach out and say, man, that was a great conversation. I was on the edge of my seat wanting more. So I've blocked out two hours this morning for a one-hour podcast just in case we uh, spill over and we'll see what we can talk about. Uh, just for people, if this is the first time they're tuning in and I keep cutting you off, I'm sorry. I'm just so damn excited to talk to you. If this first time, uh, can you explain uh, you know, your involvement with Strong First and what, what the hell does SFG mean? Where does it get its name? Certainly. So uh, it, it's funny, uh, you know, when the calendar clicks over and we're, we're now doing the second part of this conversation in 2024, yeah. uh, I got certified with Pavel in February of 2002. 
So I'm 22 years in of being certified with Pavel. Started so your certification can drink alcohol at this point, which is good. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and my first kettlebell has uh, passed the legal dr- drinking age as well. <laughs> um, they're, they're a lifetime investment. They're going to be with yeah. you for a long time. That's right. Uh, so I started teaching with Pavel a year after that. So uh, I've been teaching with Pavel for 21 years. And um, it's been, yeah, as the Grateful Dead nailed it, what a long, strange trip it's been. But uh, so I've been... Uh, been oh, and just for our long. listeners, just in case, how do you say Pavel's last name? Satsulin. Okay. With- Satsulin, Satsulin. Um, yeah. It, it starts it, with a silent T, but... Yes. Goes downhill from there. Yes, uh, for, for most people. And that's why he just goes by Pavel. Um, he's he's one of the few people that can get away with that. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we've we been teaching for a long time. Strong First was created uh, coming on 11 or so years ago now. Uh, SFG um, stands for Strong First Giria, G-I-R-Y-A, which is the Russian uh, word for kettlebell. So okay. SFG is uh, Strong First Kettlebell or Drum first gear, yeah. yeah. And um, so uh, the level one certs an intensive three day weekend. Um, we're going to look at your uh, uh, test your technique and the six essential skills. There's a snatch test. There's uh, six different practice sessions, a grad practice, and not to mention several hundred reps of practicing the skills and drills uh, over the course of the weekend. Right. Uh, our SFG two. We have a barbell certification SFL and a body weight certification SFB. Uh, and so the branches of the school of strength are kettlebell, body, uh, barbell, and body weight. And what does SFL stand for? Because I can't figure out the barbell. I don't know. Do you from Russian? Lift. They take the left. Oh, okay. Strong, Strong first, first lifter. lifter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for those, the best way I've ever heard it described, the three-day certification for a coach. So there are workshops for the kind of civilians, right? Like the people who would attend a gym. But the certification is for the people coaching those individuals. They pretty much have that right? Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is we get a lot of people uh, taking the uh, SFG and they either do it as a personal challenge yeah. uh, because, you know, and we may have talked about this last time, but, uh, you know, in our current culture and everything, we have very few rites of passage. You know, mm-hmm. we're just not asked to step up and meet standards all that often. And yeah. we on an, on an ongoing basis. And, and so there's a whole lot of, oh, Brett, it's fine. It's, you don't, don't worry about it, man. It's, it's all right. Just good enough. On. Yeah, good enough. It's fine. Alex Hanon in, um, in um, Free Solo uh, quoted his mom as saying, uh, good enough isn't. Mm. And, uh, and that's pretty much strong first in a, in a nutshell. Um, yeah. We're always looking to be on the bleeding edge uh, of the razor and uh, refine our, our techniques and, and, and everything as we, as we go along. So um, we, we have a lot of people, a good number of people who actually mm-hmm. take this personal challenge and they never teach anybody, uh, but they just want to take on that challenge of that weekend, sure. passing the snatch test and meeting the standards. And we have people that do that and then become a trainer mm-hmm. uh, because they've, had, they've been so impacted by the kettlebell and by right. the experience of getting certified. They choose to get into this industry. And, you know, we were talking uh, quick uh, before we hit record and, yeah. and inspirational stories and things like that. Um, two jumped to the front of my mind. Uh, yeah. Andrew Chang, who's out in Seattle, has a studio out there called Kettlebility, um, has been with us for many years, one of our master instructors. And when she got introduced to the kettlebell, it was her pathway to losing close to, a, I think she lost close to 100 pounds. 
Uh, I, I could be off on that number, but it was it was a pretty significant way. We'll off. give her credit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, so she, it changed, she was in real estate. Um, she was, you know, had, had gotten heavy. This changed the course of her life uh, in wow. becoming a trainer um, and uh, having and sustaining that sort of weight loss and yeah. uh, really changing her life. Uh, one of our instructors, Jeff Sokol, uh, came out of the military, certainly had some of the PTSD and some of the things that that come along with uh, some of the military service and uh, kettlebells were integral to him regaining his health and and dealing with everything and 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 again, became a trainer uh, because of his experience. And so it's one of the things that i i it's um it's a burden that I take on willingly, mm-hmm. knowing that people come through this, they have an experience and they choose to make this. Uh, not only a lifestyle, but their their calling, their profession. Um, yeah, that's a that's a it's a burden. Uh, it, it's it's strangely, I don't know how to explain this. The kettlebell, more than any other fitness tool I've ever seen, if you think about it as a fitness tool, it strangely is as close to elegant perfection as you can get. Right? It's a round ball with a handle. You only need one. Like if you were traveling around for the next year, Brett, let's just say you go on some sabbatical and you're traveling around to find, you know, something very important, the best ice cream in every, in all 50 states, right? And you're driving, you would only need to take one kettlebell, right? Yeah. And, and if you took a, a 44 or a 53, or sorry, if you're going to convert them into your imperial bananas or whatever you guys measure with, that's fine. But uh, 44, 53, or a 70, the workout numbers and things you do may change within there, but every day you could literally do a different workout that would challenge you and, and yet be effective. And it, it's hard to say that, you know, if you're traveling around in just your, your personal car, like you, what are you going to load up a barbell and a few different weight plates or, you know what I mean? Or yeah. I don't know. It's so close to perfection. And I want to talk about that and, and these stories. Um, Cause there's something strange about it because I think there is something primal about the s- gripping onto the size of that handle takes us back to our chimpanzee roots, you know? And, and as you're swinging that thing, it wants to pull out of your hand and you're pulling back and you're, you know, you've got this very few things pull at us, but I don't know if you've seen this with farmer's carries, for example, farmer's carries is one of those, as as Gray would call it, a self-correcting exercise, right? When you fatigue, you drop it and everybody's safe. I mean, as long as you don't hit your own foot, it's it's good. Um, but there's something that people love about farmer's carries, right? They They almost sometimes get this addictive nature and it's hard to describe where that comes from. Kettlebell swings. Again, you, you were making the point in our last, uh, our last conversation about, which I don't know, I, I just never really kind of cut but the loaded quick eccentrics or what did you call them like the rebound eccentrics or something like that over speed eccentrics over speed eccentrics and i was thinking how effective that is for like resiliency because how do people get injured it's like catching something turning and catching like you know and it's like hey we're going to train you in that quote-unquote dangerous position but it's not dangerous if i've done ten thousand reps at it right? right and and i was just thinking like yeah, just that weird perfection. One of the stories I remember <clears throat> at our gym, we had this woman who was like, she retired at 68 or 69 from the county. 
She was a nurse and a social worker, but not a nurse like a direct patient care, but she was a social worker for making sure people got the right health care from the county, right? And uh, she, I would, I would describe her as a very, uh, are we good still? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I would describe her as a very like square individual, like very regimented, very precise, very step-by-step, right? And I'm sure if you worked at the county for 30 years, like that's kind of how the county wants you to work, right? They don't, they're not paying you for creativity. And I remember one time we had like four sets of 12 kettlebell swings and I could see that she was fight, like you could just see it on her. She was fighting them to hold it together. And she probably should have done a lower weight, like looking back, but she decided not to. And then somewhere in her third set out of four, she made the decision someone's going to win today and it's either me or this chunk of cast iron. Right. And so she picks that thing up for her fourth set. And I remember watching her and just, I mean, this woman is 70 years old, would never describe herself as a weightlifter, would never describe herself as a fitness, as a fitness person. She was working out with us because she said, I want to travel in my retirement and I need to be strong enough to, she said, climb the steps of the, uh, not the Greek pantheon, but the Greek, whatever the ruins, you know, like she, that was her picture of health. And so at, in the middle of the third set, I'm like, you probably should go down and wait, but I could just see all over her. She wasn't going to that. And that would have kind of broken her spirit that day. And the fourth set, she picks it up and she does one of those. When she puts her hands on that thing and tilts the kettlebell to hike it, you can see there's like a half a second pause of, all right, me or you right now, you know, like I, you just see it. Yeah. And she starts swinging. And it was, the best part was she gets done. And after her 12th, she sets it down takes one step back and like leans over the kettlebell and just goes, ah! <laughs> and there's like a 70 year old who's never broken character, right? She's just been super regimented, super whatever. And she's just like, ah, and I was like, yeah, you have changed. You are different. It's, you know, you are winning. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes you see that with other, other like tools and fitness stuff, but God dang it. Does the kettlebell produce that, you know, does it make that? And uh, yeah, I just can't get over certain stories I've heard um, and seen personally with the kettlebell. And probably the other one that strikes me is like learning how effective it is at upper body, like pressing exercises, right? Pressing is one of the, I work with old crusty golfers, right? And getting them to go like into an overhead press sometimes is impossible. Like they just don't have the shoulder flexion anymore. But strangely, if they get the right, Kettlebell, I don't know, 30% of them, 40% of them can somehow get in that position because of the way it loads your joint. Whereas they couldn't do that with a dumbbell. And I'm like, God dang it, this thing is magical. This big black chunk of stupid cast iron that I hate some days is freaking magical. Um, yeah, so any of that you want to talk about, I mean, let's dive into any of those things. <laughs> Somewhere between inspiring seven-year-old women and perfect shoulder rehab, go, Brett. <laughs> Well, uh, I believe it's a Da Vinci quote that uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And uh, the the cannonball with a handle on it uh, design of a, of a kettlebell certainly, uh, in my mind, fits that. Yeah. That thick handle. I'm sure they're also, prototypes with no handle, but they get a little squirrely. So they're, that's as yeah. low as we can go in modification. 
Well, and I, you know, you can, there, there are internet arguments on where, you know, the kettlebell design came from and who, is it Russian? Is it Turkish? Is it uh, Chinese? Is it, I, I don't care. Um, it's the yeah. cannonball with a handle that I use came right. from a Russian design. So that's, that's uh, as far back as I need to go. Right. Uh, but that thick handle offset center of mass, to your point of guiding the the body into better positions um, up to a certain point. Now, certainly you cross a threshold where that offset center of mass then becomes a challenge that you need to overcome. But in a, in a certain range, that thick handle offset center of mass is going to guide the shoulder in particular into better positions. It's more alive right. in your hands. It can be swung between the legs. And there is something very primal about pushing down into the ground and moving an object with power. And that's one of the things that uh, I, I think in particular with uh, we're in strength training or typical gym culture in particular, we're, we're slow down, don't use momentum, don't go so fast. You know, unless you've trained in Olympic weightlifting, you're not used to producing power uh, mm -hmm. when you're training. Kettlebell training, swings, cleans, snatches, jerks. Uh, we want you to be powerful. We want you producing uh, that ballistic action that gets that bell flying. We want you to float and wait for gravity to do, it, to do its thing and bring it back down. Um, that action of being powerful uh, and having permission to be powerful, um, that is a changing thing. Uh, to an individual who has never been right. given that permission before. Uh, so yeah. I think that's one of the, the And I think that's sauces. a big deal. I don't know if you covered this in your certification, but like getting over that hump with people who have been told their whole life, like go slow, like feel this, blah, blah, blah. So for example, um, like I said, I worked with golfers and one of the toughest groups to work with um, for whatever reason, there's this weird thing where a lot of Chinese players come over into Las Vegas during their winter, which is our summer, and and they hang out because they can play a bunch of golf. Asian players have been taught from the start, slow and controlled, very smooth, very smooth. And then they'll ask you, like, how do I, you know, hit the ball further? And it's like, oh, well, do your best to act like a drunk American when you swing, and then you probably will go a lot farther, you know? <laughs> and you have to break them of this, like, you know, I have the brakes on and it's smooth and controlled and it's really tough to do that. You, you'll never do it if you start in the swing. A better place is start in the gym, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've tried things like take a fungo bat or, you know, a wiffle ball bat and hit a punching bag. It's like, just hit it. All right. You know, make that sound louder. And they just got to get into that turning motion and just like whip it, which they would never do in their golf swing. But a kettlebell is a great thing to do there because you know, when you're, you're saying we want them to explore power. And I don't think people understand truly what, what you're saying, because the term power has been used to describe like, oh yeah, uh, if he does these back squats, it's a very powerful movement. And it's like, no, you would have to go at a speed that would like have the gym manager throwing up in the back, searching for the insurance policy, right? Like, <laughs> oh God, it's going to be over. Like power to you is like driving your hips as absolutely hard and fast as you can over a relatively short distance, right? Right. Yeah, like, uh, like, I don't know. I played football and I remember our, our, our coach would say like, wrap and extend, wrap and extend. So like if you're tackling somebody, you want to wrap and then you'd bring your hips, bring the hips was our, and we would always joke around and say that. But I mean, I don't know of a good description to say that other than like as powerful as you can bring your pelvis forward, do it. And the mm -hmm. next rep, do it faster. 
And there's very few things where it's coached that way in the gym. In fact, like you said, it's avoided. It's scary. It's don't, you know, don't, you're out of control. Don't do that. And with a kettlebell, it's like, no, do it and do it again faster. How do you, how do you, when you see that in the certification, when people are like, this is a crazy concept, how do you get them over that hump? Uh, well, we used to joke that that's nothing a thousand swings won't fix. Um, and you know, getting people, uh, one of the, one of the drills, two drills, I think that can be effective there would be the towel swing and, um, the, actually encouraging the overspeed eccentric by accelerating or assisting with the eccentric. So from that top of the swing where they get the float and as the bell's coming down, you give it a gentle nudge so that mm-hmm. it's actually coming down faster. So you load the spring and you get a quicker return. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And then the towel disconnects you from the bell so that you can actually begin to feel. Explain the, the towel swing real quick. So towel swing, a sturdy, uh, thicker hand towel uh, that is threaded through the handle. Uh, obviously the, the uh, kettlebell handle will now be in a neutral or pistol grip position, not in a, perpendicular position and you grab the towel one inch away from the kettlebell handle. So you're very, very close to the handle, but you're just now disconnected from the bell. So if you're out of sync with the bell, you're going to see it. If you're using your arms to lift and you're not being powerful, the bell is going to hang down. It's not going to be projecting off of that towel in a straight line. So essentially what you're doing is you have to beat gravity. Gravity wants to take an effect mm -hmm. and bring the kettlebell with its base down vertically and you're trying to act with such momentum and power that it wants to stay perpendicular to you, which is its base away from you, right? Yeah, it's I'm trying projecting. to picture this for people who aren't, you know, like who have never seen this happen. But um, if you haven't tried this, go to a safe place <laughs> and step back from the wall that you want to protect. And then, you know, outside's a good place to do this. That's true. Um, yeah. But with the with the towel swing, if if you've grabbed it one inch above the handle and you, you're mm-hmm. using a thick enough, you know, sturdy mm-hmm. towel um, and you start to see more towel than mm-hmm. one inch of towel, stop. You're mm-hmm. you're losing your grip. The towel stretching. Something's right. happening. Reset and reestablish mm-hmm. that secure grip. But, um, you know, embracing this kind of centrifugal force uh, sort of action where mm-hmm. you've produced enough power and energy where that bell wants to yeah. shoot away from you in a straight line um, um, and then wants to shoot away from you in a straight line at the mm-hmm. bottom of the hinge. Uh, when you find those two points, you you can really start to accelerate that bell. And, you know, you mentioned power training and a lot of things being considered power training. If we pull back and we talk about sprinting. For example, mm-hmm. yeah. um, truly, and this even this even goes for sprinting. Um, you, it's only a power exercise while you're accelerating. As soon as you stop accelerating, it's no longer a power exercise. So yeah. power involves acceleration, and that's why the swing and the snatch and things like that are so uh, awesome for this because you are being powerful through that rep and right. full range full range of motion for the swing and the snatch is not where the bell ends up. It's your hips. So you've sat okay. back into your hips. You've extended up into that vertical plank. Yeah. That action that produces the power, the ballistic action with, with kettlebell is why it's a great power move. But so if you take that sprinting analogy and, you know, Usain Bolt was uh, anomalous because he could accelerate longer yeah. in the 100 meters. He won in the first 10 meters of a 40 meter race, right? Or a 100 meter race. Like 
Yeah, and, and he was continuing to accelerate mm-hmm. 50 meters into the race where everybody right. else had stopped accelerating at 40. And right. so he he could, his power output was way better than, than anybody yeah. else's. Um, so if you continue that sprint past the point where you're accelerating, you're doing something different. It's no longer a power drill. Um, so that, that might put it in context just a little bit better. Uh, and yeah. that's why a lot of conditioning programs for football, baseball, soccer, you know, most of your sports now will, uh, focus on flying tens, flying twenties, uh, because they're, re- they really are a power move where you can, you can accelerate into that and you know, you're still accelerating as you cross through that finish line and you have mm-hmm. time to decelerate. So. Yeah. It- um, it's interesting as you talk about, like we talked about this, the, the, I will say, what was Da Vinci's quote again? Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Yeah. And I, I've always been taught the word elegance, you know, like a calla lily is elegant, one single petal, but its shape and its form is gorgeous. You know, that, that you don't need a, a million petals, like in a rose. I think about the simplicity and, um, I recently read a book actually since our last conversation called draw to win. And the guy was talking about, you know, if you can draw, you have to simplify your ideas to be able to quickly draw them on a napkin. So his challenge basically is if you have a new business thing you're doing, or you want to launch a new marketing program, if you can't draw it on a cocktail napkin, go back and refine it, go back and refine it. Right. And I'm like, absolutely. And I don't know if, have you ever seen the old, uh, I think about this, this is what, was a breakthrough for me with the function, the functional movement screen, the screen. Have you seen the cocktail napkins that gray wrote on for Kyle Kiesel to explain the, the screen? I haven't actually. And oh, which is shocking me has them. Yeah. Yeah. Either Phil or Kyle has these. Cause I saw them in a presentation, but basically gray with his clarity said, there's really only three stances you do in most movements. Squatting stance, lunging stance, and stepping stance. So we're going to check those three. And then he said, and there's really only two ways your core gets challenged in anti-extension and anti-rotation. Everything else is a mixture of those two. So we'll check those. And then we should probably check flexibility. And the easiest way to measure overall flexibility is just check the two ball and socket joints in the body, the hip and the shoulder. And boom, if we do those things, we have a basic, screen of human movement and it was like oh my god from then on it was so easy to remember what are the three stances two core moves and two flexible or two mobility measurements right and that just made perfect sense and i was like that's why it has to be seven moves and any research that throws out moves because they're like oh we don't really do that i'm like you're missing the point or the basis of human movement definitely long way to explain it this in this book draw to win the guy says if you want to change the way you're doing things, try to do the opposite of what you think. So he said, he makes the example of cell phones. You remember cell phones, flip phones, right? And they're like, oh, we're going to come out with something better than a flip phone. So they come out with a uh, Palm Pilot and it has many more keys. Then they go to a BlackBerry, many, many more keys, right? And he's like, it went from 52 keys. And then Steve Jobs revolutionized the world, comes out with a phone with one key. That's it. One button. And people are like, how could you ever do one button? And can you imagine navigating your current iPhone if it truly had a keyboard? Like just the number of apps you have without a touchscreen, it would be useless. 
And so minimizing that is, is what makes it so great. You know, getting down to one button or now no buttons, but uh, is what makes it so amazing. And I think for those listeners that maybe have been going through different exercise things, you know, as, like with everything, we have these interests that, you know, wax and wane. And um, for example, when I was in college, I did a lot of Olympic weightlifting and I was competing in that. And this is before CrossFit really made Olympic weightlifting accessible to everybody, right? And I will give CrossFit credit. They did a fantastic job of getting bumper plates into places where they never exist. I mean, you go to 24-Hour Fitness or EOS or Crunch and they have bumper plates. Thank Greg Glassman and CrossFit for that because that didn't happen before that, that wave, right? Anyways, if you're into all those strength sports, you're into things, I challenge you, Find a season where it makes sense for you to simplify. And if we're going to go to the kettlebell, simplify to that. I mean, I'll challenge you with a single tool, a single weight for six months, right? And with that, I think the greatest exercise, the greatest, I don't want to say this, the greatest overall fitness program that promotes stability, mobility, power, strength, mental fortitude, uh, uh, builds resiliency, challenges you, builds your grip strength and extends your life and makes you a better human is the simple and sinister program as described by Pavel or as built by Pavel. I have never in my experience seen anything that was as effective with two exercises as that is. I've never seen it. I mean, I don't care if I can't think of. I mean, if you did pull-ups and and heavy clean and jerks, maybe you could get close, but because you know, in the deep clean, you're going to have some mobility, like the the deep squat and the overhead pressing. You're going overhead movements. You're going to get some mobility there. Certainly, it's a stability exercise to catch that weight. The pull-ups will help you, but the amount of equipment you need is not something you can take with you for Christmas vacation to your mother-in-law's house, right? Um, Can you explain to everybody what is the simple and sinister and what we're talking about? It's just, God dang it, man. It's perfection. It is absolute. I, I just can't think of another way to spend that amount of time and get that ROI in a strength sport. So Pavel has succeeded over the years in producing minimalist routines um, and simple and sinister is, is, uh, is, a, is a very elegant uh, example of that. So essentially um, simple is uh, there are standards to be met and it's a, it's a number of swings, 10 every 30 seconds um, or a hundred swings in five minutes. Can I stop, can I stop you real quick? Mm-hmm. So that people understand what Brett just brought up a good point. Simple and sinister is essentially the same program, the same workout, but mm-hmm. in different intensities, right? Mm-hmm. And the the idea is master the simple first, and then if you if you want to, uh, uh, as clean as I can say this, if you want to make sure that you you still got it, switch to the sinister for the following however long, and yeah, so- you'll know whether or not you are strong and resilient. <laughs> So the exercises are the same. It's swings and get-ups. So it's the one-arm kettlebell swing and it's the kettlebell get-up. And you're trying to reach the simple standard, which is the 100 swings in five minutes, one minute of rest, and then a get-up every minute for 10 minutes. 
Now, and I believe for simple, uh, for guys, it's the 32 kilo bell. And for, I believe for women, it's either the 20 or the 24. I, 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 I can't remember. Uh, but then the sinister standard is to use the 48 kilo bell, the beast, uh, as we have nicknamed it over the years. So we're using the beast for those 100 swings in 10 minutes, one minute of rest, and then get up each minute for 10 minutes. Uh, for the for the ladies, it is um, <clears throat> the 32 kilo bell for the one arm swings, one minute of rest, and then the 24 kilo bell for a get up every minute for 10 minutes. And so let's, let's translate here real quick. I just want people to picture this. The only two exercises you're doing are one arm swings. And when you complete 100 repetitions, it's broken up into sets. But when you complete 100 repetitions, you get you get a full minute of rest, which is it's very generous. Yeah. Uh, the difference between that minute of rest and a minute of commercials in between football games is as far apart as the same thing can be on earth. So anyways, you get a very, you get a full minute of rest and then you do Turkish get-ups on the right side and left side, which is essentially another, you could, from an outside observer, they think it's a single arm exercise. I mean, it's much more than that, but it's basically using your right arm, then using your left arm, switching back and forth for a total of only 10 reps, only 10 reps of Turkish get-ups. Right. Um, which again, to an outside observer would seem like, why even start that sound? What other exercise would you do 10 reps of and consider it half of a workout? You know, well, and you're and you're doing one. So you do your right arm at the top of a minute, which takes yeah. less than 30 seconds. And then you are resting to the top of the next minute where you do your left arm and you rest to the top of the next minute where you do your yeah. right arm. So it lasts less than 30 seconds in the first few, Brett. But then between the cussing, gagging, catching your breath <laughs> and wondering if life is going to continue after this moment, it might dig into the 45s, you know? Yeah, it's uh, so it, I mean, it, and it really challenges you. You're coming off of those hundred swings, uh, doing the get ups at the top of each minute. Um, yeah. it, it provides a, a real challenge to your recovery um, and your ability yeah. to maintain your your quality uh, of of movement. And so, when we talk about the weights here, so you said the simple is a 32 kilo bell for men, right? Mm -hmm. 32 yep. kilos is what is that? 68 pounds. Do I have that right? Uh, 32, 70 or 72. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you are talking about a 70 or 72 pound hunk of cast iron is the simple version of this. Yep. And then the women are using a 53 pound kettlebell, right? Is that right? 24 kilo? I'm, I'm relatively short on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look real quick, but uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So they have a 50 pound cannonball and men have a 70 pound kettle, cannonball. Now, the perfection to me comes, you know, kettlebell swings and all their variations are amazing. I think the fact that you're doing one-arm swings here is the perfect icing on a perfect cake. Because, you know, as we said, there are two ways to challenge the core, as Gray said, you know, anti-extension and anti-rotation. The little bit of offset that a one-arm swing provides over a two-arm swing, just that little bit of rotation... I find makes such a huge difference. And that kettlebell wants to exploit every deficit you have. I mean, it, it's the worst best friend you've ever had <laughs> or the best so, worst friend you've ever had. I don't know how you want to think about it, but it wants to exploit it. So when you get to the point where you can handle that with 70 pounds in your hand, your, your ability to resist rotational forces is 
significantly improved. Well, and we've we've had this looked at in the lab. So Stu McGill had Pavel uh, up in his lab, and and um, what what happened was when you compared a two arm swing with a one arm swing in the two arm swing, we achieved uh, Pavel achieved 100 percent MVC in uh, muscle groups like the lats, the glutes, uh, uh, abs, things of that nature. What is uh, MVC for, for maximum those? voluntary contraction? Yeah, AKA full out balls of the wall. And in the one-arm swing, he achieved 150% MVC in the lat and glute of the opposite side. So if he was swinging with his right arm, he was achieving 150% MVC in the left lat and left glute, to your point of the anti-rotation and just how effective the swing, one-arm swing is at elevating the impact uh, of an exercise. So of the exercise. as close as you can get, you're hanging on for dear life. I mean, you're maximally contracting this. Brett, you're cool and comfortable as a cucumber with this stuff. That chunk of cast iron wants to rip your arm out of its socket or rip out of your hand, right? I mean, when you're swinging it. Right. And but you, you know, you, you progress. I, I don't want people to walk away thinking that this is taking their life in the hands every time they, they grab hold of a kettlebell. You're, oh, it's way worse than that. Yeah. It's way worse than that. You're right. You're, pro- you're progressing wisely as you move along. Um, sure. grip, grip strength plays a tremendous, uh, point in this and it, and it provides yeah. a lot of grip training. When I entered into dedicated grip training, I did it at a, a fairly high level because of my base of, of kettlebell training. And so the shoulder stability that you're building um, in the rotator cuff responding to the pull of that bell and the power that you're producing, there's tremendous benefit to the fact that the weight is alive in your hand. So yeah. you have a good point. Like, I don't want people to be discouraged from using this. I want them to fall in love with the simplicity and the amazement that is this program. So the simple and sinister, like, as you said, so total time of the workout here. Total time. Well, th- there's a couple of different things to talk about there because if you're testing and you're doing your five minutes of swings, one minute of rest, and then you do your get-ups, it's a 16-minute session. Okay. You're training to progress towards that, but you're going to follow what uh, we call the timeless strategy. So you're doing your 10 sets of 10, alternating hands, each set swings, mm-hmm. but you're resting as long as you need to to be able to pass the talk test in between those sets. And so, you know, we want to be able and what to is speak. the talk test? Yeah. So we want to be able to speak in short sentences in between our sets. So yeah. if I had just finished a set of swings and I'm I'm going to speak in short sentences, that's an obvious fail on the talk test. I want yeah. to have recovered enough to where I can say I can speak in short sentences and then take a normal breath at the end of that sentence. And mm-hmm. then I'm ready. Um, we're really focused on this anti-glycolytic, uh, mindset in the, in the training. And, um, that's a whole other conversation that we can get into. But, um, so the timeless strategy will have you going. I, I remember one of the first times that I, um, I had trained up and I was starting my 48 kilo, uh, training for Sinister. And I did my 10 sets of 10 timeless. And I think it took me 23 minutes to do the 10 sets of 10. And this uh, is after... After training with the the thirty two kilo bell, oh yeah, yeah. So this you weren't was, going cold into this. This is like, hey, you're pretty well trained at this point. Oh yeah, by a lot of yeah. standards. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so then, but the next time I did it, it was uh, I think nineteen minutes. 
in the 19 minute range. And then it was 17 minutes. And then I went on a trip and uh, came back and it was 19 minutes again. And then it was 17 <laughs> and then it was 16. Yeah. And so the, the, the way that you progress and it's, it's painless progression because mm-hmm. you're allowing the talk test, you're allowing appropriate rest. And mm-hmm. I, I feel very strongly that rest is the single most abused training variable, uh, that, that people, um, that people abuse. They, it is the most abused thing in a gym. Yeah. People don't want to rest long enough. They think they're wasting time. They want it to be, you know, intense. They want the burn. Um, most yep. of those things are just not great and it's mm-hmm. going to kill your results. So yeah. over time now, cabbage soup diet, you're going to lose a little bit of weight in the first couple of weeks, but you're never going to be able to stick with the cabbage soup diet. Right. right. So high intensity training is the same way. You'll get good results for a short period of time, but you're going to fall off that edge. So the timeless strategy is the other side of that. And Mm -hmm. so your swings might start taking anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes, and then you're going to rest appropriately, not holding yourself to the minute rest. And then you're going to use the same strategy for your get-ups, where you're doing a rep, and then you rest, walk around, shake it off, do your next rep. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the get-ups might initially take you 15, 20 minutes. But as you practice, and we use the word practice to describe our training uh, purposefully, um, you will see the time for the swings come down. You will see the time for the get-ups come down. Mm-hmm. And you'll start to get within um, what I'll call striking distance of meeting the standard. So when you start to accomplish your swings painlessly with about sub eight minutes, seven and a half minutes of timeless work, um, and then you're, you know, same thing on the get-ups. Your get-ups have come down to where you're close to that 10-minute mark. Then it's a pretty quick peak to meet the standard, do the test, go back to regular training. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, and, and the, so the training itself is very elegant. Okay. Let me ask you um, this because I'm sure there might be people out there going, and you can look up Symbol and Sinister. And, you know, if you type that into Google, there are so many, the first, I don't know, 7,000 videos that come up are my results with Simple and Sinister, right? Like they're just like people explaining it. And I've seen some inspirational videos, you know, people, like it's just crazy. But, um, you know, the standard for Simple is 70 pounds or 32 kilos. Um, would you recommend that people start heavier and do more rest or should they start with a lighter bell and increase so that they can complete all 10 sets and then in, then make a weight jump after they're you know fairly able to do this or get to a certain amount like how would you handle it well i mean both strategies can be part of the equation but yeah. if we take it in a very if we think more a little more linear that somebody who um is going to progress to the 32 kilo bell or the mm-hmm. simple standard for women is 16 kilo uh for the get up and 24 kilos Which is roughly th- 35 pounds and yeah 53 okay. pounds yeah okay so and let's let's take a, a woman who is progressing towards the 24 kilo bell and they okay. start at the 16 for their swings uh, maybe they're starting at the 12 or the mm-hmm. eight, eight for their get-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one of the reasons, and if you look back, a traditional set of kettlebells was a 16, 24, and 32 kilo. Okay. Uh, there were no in-between weights. 
you had those three weights. And so if you were starting at the point where the 16 kilo swing was challenging or 12 kilo getup was challenging, the reason we don't do incremental loading is there is a tremendous benefit uh, and it's a classic uh, loading strategy is step loading. You go to a certain weight, you stay there. And then Mm -hmm. once you've had a, a pretty good drop in RPE using that weight, you make the next jump up and then you stay there. So there's a lot to be learned at that weight as you continue to practice it and you experience those uh, rating perceived exertion drops. So you might initially go through your swings and maybe a set of 10 swings is like an eight on an RPE scale. That's a, that's a hard effort to get through those 10 swings. You rest long enough to be able to repeat that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and hence the talk test and things that we talked about. Um, but then once that RPE drops to a five, five mm-hmm. or six, now that time to complete the 10 sets of 10 is going to come way down because you're not at such a high RPE. You're at a lower RPE. You're able to condense your rest without going through any suffering. Uh, and then at that point, you're ready to take that next step up and stay at that weight for an extended period mm. of time. Um, so it's kind of the anti-step loading, micro loading sort of, uh, sort of mindset where there, the, what you learn. And, and if we pull back and look at it from a very basic periodization standpoint, we know that within the first two weeks of a program, we get a lot of neural adaptations and we see a lot of strength gains and, and benefit. We're not getting into structural, uh, adaptations and things like sure. that yet. But, um, a lot of people will go through that first two week big gain and then they'll look to change something to get another two-week big gain. Well, if it's gained quickly, it's lost quickly. So the reason Ooh. you'll see a periodization, um, uh, if you lay out mesocycles, um, you'll see those be six to eight weeks in length. And the reason that is, is the first two weeks are, adapt- are that quick uh, response and adaptation. The next four weeks are solidifying or capturing that adaptation so that it will stick around longer. And yeah. so... The idea that we should always be going up that, you know, half pound, pound, five pounds, blah, but, you know, continuous, continuous, continuous. Yeah. No, no, no. Get to a weight, stay at a weight, mm-hmm. uh, get that RPE drop, lots of benefit. Then you can make the next step. Maybe we could approach this from a different way uh, to, to help people out. Get a, get a jar, an empty jar, and every time you work out doing the simple with whatever weight you start with, put $2 in that jar. Don't ever put five, just put two. And then when you have enough to afford the next kettlebell, (laughs) then you make that change, right? But you're just dribbling in little bits of money, just like you're dribbling in little bits of ability, but staying at that weight. uh, And then the good news is, or don't pay for expedited shipping. You know, buy the kettlebell and then wait the, the week or two it takes to get to you. Just, to make sure you've done enough at that weight and then go, go up to the next one. And that'll be great because it progressively, as the kettlebells get more expensive, you'll spend more time at the lower weights, right? Like to go from a 12 to a 16 won't take you long to save up for, but in going from a, you know, 24 to a, a 32 kilo takes a while. I don't know. That'd be my solution, but uh, it's, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, Teaches you a, a, a the the other factor of just putting aside things that are 
for, for things that matter, you know, and I think the kettlebell teaches that as well. All right. You said something a few minutes ago that I want people to, mm, as you said, rest is the most abused thing within all exercise, right? Yep. And you kind of got nerdy there for a second and said the anti-glycolytic phase. Yep. You've been working on a new project recently that kind of focuses on this un, unsung and in most gyms unknown aspect of human performance, which you're calling, is it iron cardio? Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Which th- those two words are really tough. They're, they're essentially, uh, you know, the two, two Norths on two magnets, you know, or the North side on two magnets. So you can't press them together. I always laugh because the, you know, you go to any gym and, uh, you look at the, you go to the yoga class and you look at those bodies and they're, they're floppy and stuff. You're like, Hey, you probably should be in the weight area maybe one or two days a week. And then you go into the weight area and I always look and I'm like, you know, it wouldn't hurt you guys to be in the yoga studio for a while, a couple of days a yeah. week. But iron and cardio are like that. Like I, there are so many people that you know, can lift incredible weight, but if they helped you carry a couch up a set of stairs, you'd be worried about them by the time you got to the top, right? But 500 pound squat and a heart that's going to explode, uh, sticking with anything for 38 seconds. And then the flip side, you have, I'm sure we all have those buddies who are cardio machines. Oh, I ran nine miles before work and blah, blah, blah. You know, and they're, they're, they're bundled up and running in beanie and gloves and stuff in the worst weather. And they can go forever. They couldn't help you carry an Ikea, Ikea box up to your kid's room. You know, like they can't even get up the stairs, let alone how long it helps or takes. One thing I've always appreciated about you, Brett, and and I'm sure with your work with different populations, I'll, I'll use special forces or special operators as an example. They, they're almost never without load, right? I mean, they don't ever go slick in anything. So they're always carrying some weight and they need to be able to go forever. And when they get to whatever they're doing, they need to have the strength or ability to climb a wall or carry a guy or, uh, you know, dig a hole or sledgehammer down a wall. But yet, if you look in most gym programs, and you said like, hey, does this train a person for that kind of, can I go forever and still have strength? It'd be like, oh no, we have a light switch approach. Either you're strong or you have cardio. We never would blend both. Yet in the real world, I think we perceive that to be some of the, you know, the most capable people ever have that blend of, of, cardio and strength. Um, you know, Pavel's one of those guys. You, you look, as my friend described it, he, he worked, my friend, uh, my roommate in college, Ryan, he worked on a Sawyer crew for the forest service in, in the summer, like a firefighting crew, right? And mm-hmm. you're just constantly slinging a chainsaw and gas cans and chopping stuff and all this. And he goes, yeah, we got this guy. He's our team leader. His name's Johnny. It's one of those guys, you look at them and you, you know, if you just threw a rock at them, the rock would break. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how Pavel strikes me, right? Like he's strong enough to wrestle anybody. Uh, He's, he looks like if it's like, Hey man, we got to hike 13 miles up this mountain. It sucks, but somebody needs our help. It's like, all right, let me tie my shoes. We'll go. And that is missing from most American styles of training, right? So can you kind of go into how you started on this path of this iron cardio kind of the origin story? And then what is it? And maybe by the end of this, 
we can spill over into how people can kind of maybe get into some of those windows to be like, oh, let me check this or test this to see where do I, you know, where do I rank? Because it's not pure VO2, right? Like no. VO2 max. It's like we're measuring the wrong thing there. So anyways, what's the origin story of Iron Cardio? So um, after cancer treatment, having lost 40 pounds, 40 plus pounds and, and being broken down to about the, the, the lowest level that I had been um, in, in my life, um, I needed to start can we, training. Can we give some perspective there? How tall are you? So five, eight and a half, uh, five, nine, if I stand up really tall. Um, yeah. And if you and, let your hair uh, grow a couple of days, cause ex- that exactly. balls, you're five, eight, but it, you know, with some stubble, you're like five, a good five, nine. And what were you weighing at the time you, when you got diagnosed with cancer? So I entered into cancer treatment, just over 205 pounds. Okay. Um, I was heavy at the time. I, I, I will admit that. But uh, you were stout. Well, I mean, you had some. You I was training for Sinister. I was, uh, yeah. I was, you know, swinging 48 kilo bell. And right. I want people to know, like you, as long as I've known you, Brett, you've been in, you maintain a very good amount of muscle mass. No one would yes. ever describe you as the biggest guy around, but um, you always have a good amount of mass and you always look like the kind of guy I'd call to help move a couch. Hell, I might ask you to help move. I got boulders, Brett. And I, <laughs> you got a strong back do, and simple mind. We can do that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I went into treatment a little over 205. Uh, okay. Lost over 40 pounds during treatment. Um, and then as I started to begin wanting to train again, I, you know, my brain went through several iterations. And so I tried a few different things and I said, I'm, I'm down to 164. I haven't been this light in a long time. I'm going to start back with some body weight work. I'm going to do and, 25 pull-ups at, per set, right? I mean, at that weight, yeah. Jesus, I can pull the, pull myself up. No problem. Struggled to get go? through uh, <laughs> poorly. Struggled <laughs> to get through even th- like three pull-ups was extremely challenging. Wow. I wasn't strong enough to really move my body weight effectively. So I said, yeah. going back to simple and sinister, I'm going to do my swings and my get-ups. I wasn't strong I, I, just enough. Just real quick. I remember, I don't know if you ever read Lance Armstrong's book. It's not about the bike. Mm-hmm. And I remember there's a, he writes a little excerpt in there about when he was deep into cancer treatment, his buddies came over and like, Hey, let's, let's hop on the bike and just cruise your neighborhood. Lance, like we just, you know, want to spend time. Now these are all guys that have either were currently training for tour de France or had completed it along with years of cycling. And so they go around the block and he says they do like whatever three miles, which he was embarrassed because these guys three miles, they're not even, they're, they're not, they're not even near warm, you know, but two years later, he sees one of the buddies who rode with him that day. And, and Lance was saying, yeah, I knew we were going to go short. So I wanted to go hard and really, you know, give these guys a, you know, challenge like, Hey, I can't go forever, but God dang it. I'm going to go hard. And like three years later, he sees his buddy who rode with and he's like, yeah, well, at least I could keep, I could keep pushing at that time. And his buddy got a weird look on his face. He goes, Lance, we thought we were going to fall over. We were going so slow. <laughs> you were not going hard, bud. Like we went short and easy. And, and Lance was like, no way, man. I was like sweating. And he's like, you might've been, we weren't, you know? Right. So I think people might underestimate how much cancer treatment sucks out. Like you have nothing. So the fact that you could pick yeah. up a kettlebell, Brett, was, you know, is a, is a monument to your strength. But go on well, with your story. Sorry. Well, thank you. It's uh, so uh, I decided that I was going to go back to simple and sinister. Well, it turns out I wasn't strong enough to be powerful. I could actually kind of produce more force than my body was ready to to take on. 
And so I came back to a style of training. Um, Pavel and Alexei Sinart put out an article in 2014 called Strength Aerobics, a powerful alternative to hit. And the concept was clean, press, squat, set the bell down, shake it off. Clean, press, squat, set the bell down, shake it off. Uh, and rinse and repeat forever how long you wanted to, to do it. And so I went, I had used the style of training really ever since the article came out. It, it appealed to me uh, at the time. And so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to go back to. I'm going to get, uh, go, go with a weight that I can clean, press, squat. Um, and I started into using this. And then as I spent time doing it, I started coming up with a bunch of different variations. Clean, press, squat, add a snatch. Um, traveling twos, where a set of two travels to the sequence. Two clean, one press, one squat. One clean, two press, one squat. One clean, one press, two squats. Rinse and repeat. Do it with snatches. Add a pull-up. Double bell, single bell. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've actually completed a session and went back to see how I, what my time was and you know, trying to compare sessions. I have to go back a year to find that same exact session that I just completed. So the amount of variation that's possible within a very minimalist routine, clean, press, squat, snatch, maybe there's a pull-up involved every now and then. Um, so that is where the iron cardio program came from and two different things to get into, um, just the word cardio and what that evokes for people. Uh, and, and there's an exercise physiologist somewhere, uh, who's about to lose their ever loving mind because we keep <laughs> using the word cardio, um, and then energy systems. And, yeah. um, so to put it in as quick a terms as possible, because we mentioned anti-glycolytic three basic energy systems. Um, your alactic or CP system, quick energy, um, actually super efficient. You just don't have much of it. Glycolysis or the glycolytic system is this in-between energy system between when you've exhausted your CP, uh, but you don't have your aerobic mechanisms fully deployed. And aerobic mechanisms, again, very efficient, good turnover. Um, you can go hours, if not days, of continuous aerobic work because the system is that efficient. As long as you're right. still moving oxygen and there's still some fuel in the body, you can your aerobic system will deploy for a long time. Now, interesting thing with those two systems, alactic and aerobic, is they deal with their own waste products very efficiently. If you're operating in the alactic and CP system, um, there's not going to be a lot of waste product. There's it's going to reabsorb the lactic mm -hmm. acid. And lactic acid, lactate is not the problem. It's the hydrogen ion that comes along with it that has to be dealt with. Um, but in the alactic and aerobic systems, they very efficiently deal with their own waste products. Glycolysis leaves over 50% of its waste products for somebody else to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so that accumulation of hydrogen ions, that accumulation of acid, uh, actually starts to inhibit energy production uh, even from itself. It, it even in inhibits glycolysis. Uh, but it also inhibits the alactic and the, and the aerobic mechanisms. Now, this is the burn that most people want and they think is actually where the results are happening. Wrong. And um, so that's kind of a quick overview of the three uh, energy systems. And when we talk about cardio and even when we use the term aerobic, when, when I use the term aerobic within that energy system conversation, I'm talking about what's happening in the mitochondria in the cell, mm -hmm. the aerobic mechanisms mm -hmm. that are producing energy, not aerobics as in it. We could have the same conversation, cellular respiration versus respiration. 
moving air in and out of the lungs and gas exchange is different from cellular respiration, which is also. I hope everybody listening goes, the guy's not just a strength coach, (laughs) deep down a nerd too, you know? Absolutely. But essentially what you're saying is early energy system, to me, the the way I picture it is is like a, a gun firing. Burns up all the fuel. There's a little bit of residual dust, but overall pretty clean system. Mm-hmm. The, the third one, the aerobic, is like a jet engine. Takes a while to spin up. You can't just start it immediately. While, and it's clearing out uh, waste out the back. And when it's running, is an effective or is an efficient user of fuel, right? Yep. But it's that middle ground of, hey, let's transition from immediate energy, clean burn to Long-term clean burn, that middle energy is where a lot of the waste product comes from and produces a ton of it. Yep. Okay. And then then doesn't deal with it. And yeah. so um, just to get into the cardio end of things, mm-hmm. just, just real quick, um, and you mentioned it, it's not just VO2 max. And so there's cardio, um, we can break that down into what's actually happening in the heart. We can break that down into what's actually happening with the exchange of um, of gases and and how efficiently that system is is uh, moving through and exchanging air with the lungs and getting rid of the CO two and things of that nature. Um, and so there's there's a lot of different aspects. Mm-hmm. And so when you use quote strength training for cardiovascular adaptations, mm-hmm. we we have to have a couple of different conversations. A I'm not talking about using a set of 15 squats as cardio because two things happen. Um, a, I'm under tension. If a muscle is contracting, you can't force blood into it or you can't force much blood into it. And so the, that things we talked about as far as the CP, glycolytic, glycolytic and aerobic mechanisms, there's no oxygen coming in. So you can't be aerobic. Mechanically, you, it can't happen. Forget the chemistry. Right. Mechanically, you have shut the, the, you're, you're squeezing the sponge and you can run water on it all day. It ain't, it's not going to accept any, any water. Okay. Correct. So, um, when we develop tension, we shut off blood supply. We actually go glycolytic faster and more intensely than we do with traditional aerobic exercise, such as mm-hmm. a, a sprint, for example, which would be a good yeah. example of a, a high alactic, uh, sort of activity, uh, especially in the first, a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I'm not talking about that. And then as we develop that tension and we have less blood returning to the heart now, because what, what makes cycling uh, fantastic is we have this pumping action that's actually moving a lot of blood efficiently through the body. And mm-hmm. so we get a lot of blood return. So we get a nice stretch of the left ventricle and then a nice strong contraction of the left ventricle as we move blood through the body. The problem with using strength training for, quote, cardiovascular adaptations is, A, you're not going to get it. <laughs> and don't need to talk any further uh, because you have less blood coming back. You're not mm-hmm. getting a stretch of the mm-hmm. left ventricle, but you are having to contract very powerfully to move blood through that tension to the best yeah. of your degree. It's like a side, high side blood note pressure. here. I w- I, when I was in college, uh, one of my professors had done research on the instantaneous blood pressure readings in well-trained Olympic weightlifters, right? So I went down to the Olympic training center and the heavyweights, the super heavies, the big guys like me, uh, 
that were lifting much more weight than I do. But um, when they catch a, a clean, that first acceptance in the eccentric, this guy was saying that you could, if you rounded for error, there's a moment when their blood pressure is something like 500 over 400. And he actually was able to get a hold of, he did an autopsy on a couple, or he didn't do the autopsy. He got to see slides from an autopsy of some retired weightlifters. And you see rings of scar tissue in their left vent and their, what would it be there? What would, what absorb? So left vent is pumping blood out. What's absorbing the blood when it comes in? Right atrium? Oh, uh, whatever it is. Yeah. You could see these rings of muscle, scar tissue, muscle, scar tissue, muscle, scar tissue. Just like you would see in skeletal muscle when somebody's building up. It's just a, it was so dramatic to these guys. They couldn't believe it. But to your point about like, um, you know, you're, you can't, at those blood pressures, you can't maintain quote unquote healthy pumping because it would blow your system apart. Right. But you can get it for a moment and accept it. So anyways. Right. And so that, and there are studies on Olympic weightlifting and cardiovascular adaptations. And it actually, because you get the stress in the moment, but then you recover aerobically in between, Mm -hmm. it's not continued tension, pressure, tension, pressure, tension, pressure, trying to operate under that load that there you start getting very negative adaptations. If the stress is brief and powerful uh, and you allow recovery, you get the best of both worlds. You get right. a, a a lot of power training, and you get a lot of aerobic or cardiovascular adaptations right. um, in 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 the benefits. So, the thing with the iron cardio sequence, going from a ballistic like a clean into a grind like a press, resetting your breath and coming through the squat, and then setting the bell down, your the length of that set will typically be way under ten seconds, probably seven to seven to eight seconds. Mm-hmm. So. From an energy system standpoint, we're still a lactic, very little glycolysis. From a cardiovascular standpoint, we're alternating where the stress is, both upper and lower mm-hmm. body. We're going from mm-hmm. ballistic to grind, um, and then we're setting the bell down and shaking it off. So we're not under that continual tension and pressure. So we get a lot of peripheral adaptations, and this is where it goes beyond the VO2 max. Uh, we get capitalization, an increase in blood flow. We get uh, local muscular efficiency uh, and training of the mitochondria uh, that are really kind of more important than the VO2 max uh, adaptations. Yeah. For now, if, if I'm a Tour de France person, yeah, my VO2 max is um, the most important thing that I can do. Right. Um, if I want to run a marathon, VO2 max really starts to matter. Uh, most other applications, VO2 max doesn't. Yeah, I mean, really you think. Yeah, you think like, uh, again, I'll go back. Like, I think it's it's often overlooked about how many car- quote-unquote cardio events we do or need to train for that are work capacity measures more than VO2 max measures. Meaning you, you have the young mother, right? And she's she's leaving Costco. She's got a, let's just say, going out to the, the parking lot. She's got a quarter mile walk with a weight on one side of her body, right? And that weight might be 30 pounds all in with the diaper bag and the kid and the carrier and all that stuff, right? And she has no ability to set that down or rest. I mean, she could, but most will push through and make it all the way. You look at somebody, you know, like right now, I have a friend, he uh, he just, uh, he's a big game hunter, right? So he's going in with a 30 pound pack and coming out with a 80 or 100 pound pack 
And he's got to do that three times to get his, his deer elk out of the backcountry, you know? And so there's, there's never a lack of weight there. Right. Um, yep. if you, my wife's doing this crazy thing called the 29029. It's like a challenge to, uh, hike the height of Everest at, in Jackson hole, Wyoming. So to accomplish that, you have to go up like 18 times. So this is crazy, but that you go up the mountain 18 times, it gains like, it's like 3.2 miles of hike and it gains a thousand feet of elevation or something like that. So that's just constantly under load, right? Regardless of what you're carrying. Um, and then the gondola you back down to preserve you enough. But interestingly, everybody says that's the challenge of that event is to your point. It's the rest. It's resting recovering and then having to do it again that presents its challenge if you're just slogging through the whole thing and never getting that rest period it for whatever reason probably because you're not your power output goes way down because you're just garbage um but when you have those blips of rest and then so you start out with high power output it probably ends up sucking more out of your system right my point being all of those are essentially loaded much more than what we think and all of those would not be good way. Measuring VO2 max would be a misleading indicator. It's just easy to measure. Right. And so defining endurance as the yeah. ability to produce work uh, at a desired intensity yeah. over time is right. the big key. And yeah. so if, we're, if we take a boxer, for example, um, I, you, A, you have to have a strong enough punch to mean something. And so there's a base level of strength that, that you yeah. need in order to be able to knock somebody out and be effective as a, as a boxer. But now you need to be able to have that power output, that desired intensity over time. Yeah. If you can only do it once, you, you better land the shot right. quickly. Um, only Mike Tyson won boxing matches in the first 10 seconds of the first round, right? Right. Yeah. So, I do like the term in boxing. They say, uh, there's a way to say it. They, they say that guy's going to take you out into the deep water and make you swim around, meaning he's going to make you fight for six, seven, eight rounds, yeah. and he's going to pepper you the whole time so that you are worn down. And that's a way that veteran dream and boxers win, you know? Yep. They just survive the first three rounds, and then, and then it's like cat and mouse, essentially, with a tired-ass mouse. <laughs> and so, the like, with, with iron cardio, the, the, the important thing becomes a resting in between those efforts, it's keeping the efforts brief. I've found that between three to five total repetitions in a set is uh, as much as you can do. So that's either clean press squat, clean press squat snatch, or the traveling twos, where now if we're doing clean press squat snatch and one of those has two reps in it, I'm at a max of five reps. That, is that a more advanced version of it though? Um, well, you have to be able to snatch. And... Uh, this is where I talk about in the book, uh, linear versus exponential changes. Mm -hmm. We only went up one exercise, one rep. We went clean press squat, and then we went clean press squat snatch. Yeah, that's not a linear one-step progression. That is an exponential change in that output uh, yeah. for that set. Um, I've never done a plus snatch variation of iron cardio and thought, oh, that was easier. Um, it's, it's always, it's, it's a uh, exponential sort of increase and doing traveling twos with that is, uh, um, that really adds to it. And so, um, you know, being 
obeying the stop signs. Um, if speed changes, tempo changes, you can't pass the talk test or you can't reset your breath for the next effort, um, then you need to rest longer or stop for the day. And so um, there's there's metrics that you can put in place there that will help you use this style of training. It's just like using the timeless method uh, for swings and giving yourself the rest that you need. And to your point about the the Jackson Hole thing and the way the rest starts to kind of suck it out of you is it depends on how long the rest is. There, there's an optimal amount of rest where the aerobic mechanisms and the things that you want to be engaged for the next effort are still there when you start your next effort. If you rest mm-hmm. too long, it's starting over from zero again. Now you got to go through that deployment phase of getting the aerobic system to to deploy and uh it, it becomes fatiguing because now you're having to restart uh every time all right so take us back brett there you are out of cancer treatment let's just say you're i don't know three months out you're getting it back what was going on in your head when you would engage in these challenges like what you know when you're saying like you do one at the whatever you do, uh, what was it? Clean press squat, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say you're 16 rounds into that, right? What's going through your head as you're, you're coming up and back up in strength. You're, you got a vacuum cleaner inside your lungs sucking. Out. <laughs> what well, you got? It, it was, it was actually never, um, the, the training itself was never painful. Right. It, mm-hmm. I was never pushing into that red zone and, and trying to redline my heart rate or, yeah. or really doing anything like that. I was focused on the quality of every repetition. You remember, so, maybe it was probably in your youth when I think it was George Foreman fought Muhammad Ali and he's George Foreman at the time was an absolute killer. I mean, people don't give that guy credit. He, he, he's known for his amazing in, indoor grill more than he is for his amazing indoor inside the boxing ring uh, prowess. The guy was a killer. And there's one point where he's beaten Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali was pretty old at the time he was taking on George Foreman. You know, he'd had a career. And there's this time where he's, I don't know, they're got to be in the seventh round or something. And you can see Muhammad Ali is like exhausted. He's tired. And then he just starts kind of like nodding to himself, you know, and he's like shaking his head up and down. Like I can do this. I can, you know, I can do it. And it kind of goes back to what I, that story I told about the nurse or, you know, when you're, you're nodding to yourself, when the cardio doesn't suck it all out of you, there's still that moment. And it's a weird, I don't know, man, it's like a primal thing again inside of us where it's like, this is hard and I'm going to keep going because yes, I can. Did you have those moments? I mean, as you're coming back, are you seeing the sun rise again in, in your own strength? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And that's well, you'd where you spent a few months drinking bleach essentially and injecting it into various parts <laughs> of your body. So I don't know if you'll feel that great, but take us through that because I think that you had a, essentially a second chance looking back, of course, but a second chance at rebuilding strength, which you really hadn't had for what, 30 years at that point, 40 years. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've come back from a variety of things. Uh, okay. I like to say I'm not a garage kept single owner that was only driven to church. I, uh, I have some mileage and uh, no low yeah. offers. I know what I got. <laughs> yeah, I've had a I've had eleven different surgeries. I've had oh, wow. uh, you know a lot of different things go on. Oh um, yeah, 
Yeah, you dealt with like none a of, but none congenital of hip were, or something, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, no, I got mileage. I got stuff. Um, but none of them had broken me down the way the cancer treatment had. And I, and, and I, you know, had never had to restart the way that I did. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ed Thomas, one of my, uh, one of my early mentors, um, said he never went to the gym to work out. He mm. went to the gym to learn. Mm. Now the workout happened. He got sweaty. He got fit. All of yeah. those things, the peripheral things that we're, we're looking for, but he was interested in learning that next skill, that mm-hmm. next progression. And for me, that practice was refining the, that clean, refining the press, nailing my squat uh, as I started building in the snatch and different variations. What was my quality like in each mm-hmm. of those repetitions? And so I was focused on the, the quality and the RPE and having a drop in RPE and going up in load and holding myself between the 24 and 32 kilo bell for an extended period of time. This is um, well documented in that documentary Karate Kid, where he's wax on, <laughs> wax off, paint the fence, all that stuff, and then practice. Yeah, ends up with it, but it's a it's a funny part of it. What did you learn as a strength coach going back through that rebuilding phase? So, I mean, here you are as an educator. You've always amazed me in in the way your mind works. So, please take this in the spirit which was intended. But you have also in Strong First. I could see that you could be pulled towards these incredible elite high level master trainers certified, you know, the, you have multiple certifications you guys uh, offer where somebody could be certified in SFG, SFG2, SFL, SFB. That person is a gangster. (laughs) That person that's certified, ain't nobody making it through on their good looks, right? Like they have been challenged and tested and everything. but you're also tasked with not getting distracted by them. They are incredible. But the person that also needs your brain power is, how do I go from never having held a kettlebell to certified, right? In, in mm-hmm. let's say a year. Or I've never, nobody's ever taught me a kettlebell and I want to go to this workshop. And if it's too intimidating, I'm going to walk out, right? And how do you find that line? Did any of that come to you as a, cancer survivor rebuilding person and go, holy crap, I, I forgot how challenging X is or how. Yeah. I mean, it was all challenging. You know, know, it was, it was a really an opportunity to, to relearn and kind of start from zero. Uh, and, and, you know, what does it mean to, I I remember I I was writing an article, uh, and needed to do a video of some, some cleans and, um, I, I, it took me several takes to get a set in that I was happy with that I, that I would actually submit with the article. And it was because I was relearning, uh, my movement and, uh, yeah, definitely it's an appreciation of, uh, you know, everybody's fighting a battle that you know nothing about. And, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it's not easy. Um, but it's, but it's worthy. It's worthy of the effort. And so, yeah, there's just a ton of relearning. Yeah. I, I recently got asked to, um, so we, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners here that are chiropractors have, you know, at some points in our career, we market to attorneys, right? We want to have a good relationship because they can send us some really good clients. And one thing that's been going on in our local legal field is they've been dealing, even before COVID, they've been dealing with what they even feel 
as pressure as mental health issues to the point where some of their colleagues have, you know, killed themselves. And so now one of their required continuing education units every year is mental health, wellness, and they can't quite wrap their arms around what is, what is the term, but why the hell are people following in, falling into this trap of so much mental anguish that they're either burning out and leaning, leaving the profession. And sometimes that's incredibly well-respected and well-accomplished attorneys. And they just go, forget this, man. I'm going full John Galt here. I'm out, right? Yeah. And, and then, you know, why would they have so much mental anguish that they kill themselves? And you're talking about people that are certainly not a financial issue. So, you know, like they're, they're well-paid, they're well-respected. They seem to engage in the work. Anyways, uh, so I got asked to teach this course and we're going through like, why do these things happen? And, you know, a focus for us, of course, is like how do people get addicted to like opioids and, and fentanyl and all these things, because that's, that train is tough to stop once it starts going down those tracks. Right. But one of the attorneys asked me in these presentations, so what the hell do we do about it? Right. Like what, like, so what? And I remember listening to this guy one time in an interview and he was saying that his son had a company that was, they'd borrowed money from their parents a bunch of times and their company was, it was, they wasn't making it. Right. And, uh, his son's like, I just don't know what to do. And the, the dad just blurts out, well, just meet me at the gym tomorrow at 5am and we'll figure it out. And so that 5am workout became the refuge for the son. And the dad had just said it as like, God damn it. Stop bothering me. You know, just meet me at the gym. We'll figure it out. But the dad goes on to explain like how much he saw that guy change in the gym over two to four weeks. Right. And just that, Hey, I, something about when you're stuck in your mind and you're falling apart, grabbing a hold of weights, hopping on a stair climber, whatever, just get sweat pushing out of your pores and get a different sensation in your body, you know, whatever it is. I'm just sitting there thinking like with this, is that the solution to this wellness thing? You know, is that the solution to this mental fitness thing? Because so many times it's like, oh, go see this psychologist, go see this. And yet, again, going back to the primal nature of holding on to that big old fat handle of the cannonball with a handle, you know, feels like it reminds our DNA of a, <laughs> of a jungle branch, right? And it takes us back there. Uh, I don't know what I was trying to get at when I started explaining this story, but how, do, how was your mental fortitude and your mental picture in those phases when you're coming back again, not, not immediately, but three months in six months in, you're still down weight. You're still down strength. Uh, what were the signs signposts for you that things were, were going all right? Uh, well, three things. Um, one, I have a counselor. I have a, I have a mental health counselor that I work with. Uh, and I, other than the kettlebell, other than the kettlebell. Yeah. Because number two is my, my training. Uh-huh. My training is a, a a source of therapy for me. Getting yeah. the physical out uh, helps me deal with uh, a lot of stress. And mm-hmm. so, and obviously, you know, above all of that is my wife and and my um, ability to share uh, within my most important relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, having the support of a mental health counselor, having the ability to get out 
the physical um, and to get out mm-hmm. the mental through the physical in my training. Uh, all you know, those three things are are really important. And my a little bit of a, a guiding principle or mindset, or it, it probably functions in a bunch of different areas. Um, my overall drive in, in things is identify the next step, take the next step. And if you take enough steps, you get where you want to be. So it's kind a little, of confidence through, through action. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I don't need affirmations. I don't need, uh, I don't, I, none of that. It's identify the next step, take the next step. And a little riff on the Martian where he says, you know, if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. So, you know, if you take enough steps, you, you, you get where you want to be, or at least you learn how not to, to mm-hmm. do something, which is just as valuable. And so identify the next step, take the next step. I just knew that I needed to get the next session in. I needed to, you know, do the next doctor's appointment, do the next thing. Yeah. Did you train during your treatment or were there periods you had to go without? I did some walking, but I was not lifting. Um, so I was actually in the hospital three different times during my treatment for how long weekends. Um, so my first week of cancer treatment, my L4, L5, uh, L3, L4 disc decided to go. And so I ended up, and then when you're a cancer patient and you come in with any sort of, uh, anything, they were like, well, we got to check everything because it could have metastasized. Yeah, that's so another very, site until proven it's not, right? Exactly. So I had a very thorough evaluation uh, of my back and, and everything like that. And so I had to deal with that uh, very early in, in the treatment. Um, and then uh, my nausea got away from me. Um, I, was, I was so sick from chemo that uh, I just, the stuff they give you to control your nausea, I couldn't keep down. Yeah. And so I it spiraled out of control when I had to go in and be on an IV uh, to get get nausea under control. And then at the end of treatment, I was in again for pain management. Uh, I was I was in so much pain um, that I, I couldn't function. Um, yeah. And I actually ended up on fentanyl for uh, fentanyl patches for like eight to eight weeks after treatment, something like that. I wish I had got better notes. Um, afterwards, and I could probably talk to my doc and find out the exact uh, the sure. exact time frame. Um, had some withdrawal uh, after that, um, and had to deal with that. I kind of dealt with that um, um, at, after the fact, and um, so you know there there were a lot of challenges in there. But I would yeah. walk as much as I could. And what were how far were you walking? Boy, on a good day, I would cover almost three miles, two and a half to three miles. Uh, on a bad day, I'd get a half mile out from the house and turn around and go back and get wow. a, either just a half mile or get a, a, a mile in and then nap. Um, wow. But there were days where due to the pain and, and everything, I, I would, uh, I would, I started drinking these, uh, Kate farms, um, very neutral, no flavor, uh, 500 calorie drinks about 12 ounces. They were, I think they were 12 ounces. Uh, take a sip, burn, pain, sip of water, burn, pain, wait for the pain to go subside. Because you had sip. throat cancer, right? So yes, these things are going down the, to down this very site of which your problem is. Yeah. And so, and to put that into perspective, uh, about a year after treatment, I thought I was being smart. And I asked my ENT, um, Dr. Interval was his name. And I asked him, I said, should we take my tonsils out since I've had cancer there? And he goes, 
Yeah, you don't have those anymore. We burned those out. Like, so that's, that's how much radiation was going on there. It actually burned right. away, uh, organs from, from my throat, um, <laughs> to put it, put it into perspective. So, you know, it would take me an hour and a half to drink 12 ounces of, of liquid, uh, for 500 for, calories for 500 calories. And wow. I would, uh, some crazy way. It's taking you back to your wrestling, uh, wrestling days in college, right? Like of, uh, I'm going to yeah, calorically restrict myself and suffer. Now that way you wrapped yourself in a trash bag, hopped in a sauna and ate nothing, but you know. Yeah, this um, all radiation circle. was was the the main treatment. And uh radiation fatigue and and the way radiation affects you is uh yeah, it's it's something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brett, I'm damn glad you're here today, man. Thank I'm you. I'm glad sir. you made it through that that path and you're here to to guide others. Um I feel like we've hit a bunch of points today, but I certainly appreciate the time. So for those interesting, going back to where we're at and what we started with the humble chunk of cast iron called the kettlebell. And somehow we got into life, the journeys, the pathways, the unexpected turns of cancer treatment and walking half a mile before needing to nap. <laughs> yeah. And I think that covers man i know that there's been synonyms in my career in my life and you know i hope i don't uh, go through cancer treatment but i'm glad you you made it all the way through so thank you with that as, i will as say I like, as i like to say the cancer survivor club is the one you never want to join but you're damn glad to be in it yeah that's right yeah um going back to the sfg certification the certification again, is a three-day event for people who want to take on a personal challenge and refine their coaching abilities of kettlebells. Yeah, The best way I heard it described was uh, if you've ever wanted to challenge yourself with an Ironman to challenge yourself, to challenge your endurance, an SFG weekend is a challenge in the strength sports of the same caliber. And I think, yeah, People would look at an Ironman and go, well, there's no way I could do it next weekend, you know, but six months from now, I probably could. And I think SFG might be the same. If people are interested in that, where can they get more info? Strongfirst.com. Yeah. Strongfirst.com. And I, I, I've gotten questions about this before, but the certification is the one for coaches. The workshops are one that people could, uh, can people like contact you if they want to host a one day workshop at their gym uh, or facility they have? Sure. Uh, I mean, my personal availability is limited, but uh, I may be able to hook you up with uh, one of our teachers of strength that's uh, in your area or w willing to travel and, and could probably get, get something on the schedule a little sooner. Yeah. Um, my, my 2024 is done. Like I'm not yeah. taking anything else uh, for this cool. year. And, uh, but yeah, uh, we can certainly make those happen. You can take a look at the schedule. There might actually yeah. be something in your area that you just weren't aware of. And for those that are, absolute maniacs and really want to challenge themselves. SFG one is the, what do you call that? That's wetting your beak in the ways of strong first and the ways of the kettlebell. Um, real quick for the SFL, which is the barbell certification, mm -hmm. right? What are the lifts that are going to be coached or mastered during that weekend? So, uh, you can take a look at the standards on the website, but, um, uh, so bench, military press, 
deadlift, squat uh, are going to be the, the the main focus. Okay. Um, there's there's some variations. It's always that simple elegance. Lifts. Like four four is a lot a lot of lifts, and then go to the SFB, the body weight certification. What is that? So uh, progressions towards the one arm push up or one arm one leg push up, the pull up, the pistol or single leg squat, uh, handstand push ups, uh, things things of that nature. All right, cool. And uh, anything else? So there's barbell, body weight, SFG, which is a kettlebell one and two. Yep. Level two gets into more double kettlebell skills, uh, mm. jerks, bent press, windmill, uh, double snatch, uh, things of that nature. Um, and all of those have standards and uh, testing that you that you need to meet. You can see all of those standards on the on the website. All right. Well, from everybody I've ever heard that's passed on their first try that weekend, it is quite an accomplishment. So if you are a student of the strength game, uh, I hope you take away from this and how simple the game can be played yet not mastered, right? It's like just hit the very center of the golf club. It's not that hard. <laughs> Some of us will spend the rest of our lives <laughs> trying to find out how not that hard it can be. Inch wide, mile deep. There you go. All right. Well, Brett, this has been a pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. I appreciate you sharing everything you have today. Uh, for those listeners, examine that simple elegance, man. It, it's just, we get so distracted by all these things we want to add in and all these tools we want to use and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, spend six months pursuing the simple and sinister and your life will be, your life will be changed. You'll be amazed. All right. Well, without uh, going on and on about how great you are and how great a kettlebell is, I'll wrap it up here. Thanks so much for the time today, Brett. Uh, as always, I always say, go out there, maximize your life, <laughs> maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Brett, thanks a lot for the time. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.